Well, good evening and Merry Christmas to all of you. Let me applaud you for braving the frozen tundra to come and join us tonight. Pastor Caleb told me I had 10 to 12 minutes to preach this evening, and since it's my last time, I decided to preach for 45 minutes because what are you going to do, fire me? <laughs> Just kidding. I won't preach that long, only 30. Our text tonight for our Christmas Eve service comes from the book of Luke. We're reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, a, a passage that one commentator remarked is remarkably ordinary for the story that it tells, remarkably mundane for a passage concerning God coming to dwell among us. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this time when we come together and marvel at the fact that you, Lord of all, creator of heaven and earth, would come and dwell with us and dwell not in, in might, in power, but as a child. Jesus, you were, who holds all things together, upon whom all things depend, came and depended upon human parents for life, that you might give life to us. Spirit, I ask that you would come and open our hearts, open our eyes as we briefly look at this passage and as we go home with our families to celebrate that we might see you. Jesus, glorified, risen, ascended for us. We ask this in your mighty and matchless name. Amen. Well, the year 43 BC, the Roman poet Virgil, who many of you may have read his Aeneid back in high school, Virgil wrote these words, from heaven descends a noble progeny. He will accept his life as of the gods, with whom the heroes mingle, seen by them, the whole world will he rule. This, these lines are found in the middle of what is known as one of his eclogues, one of his, his pastoral poems written the year after Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Senate. It's hard to know exactly what his purpose was for writing them, but in this one in particular, he pictures a scene where peace has descended upon the whole world where peace has come, and in the form of a man, who is also God, to rule over the entire world. And while there's debate about who exactly Virgil is talking about, most agree that he is writing some sort of propaganda piece for a young man by the name of Gaius Octavius. Gaius would eventually, he, while starting off as the adopted son of Julius Caesar, would one day, in 27 BC, be renamed Caesar Augustus, 
the highest Caesar, Lord of the world. And we see inscriptions all throughout the empire hailing Augustus as one of the gods. In fact, there is one worth quoting in full. It was found in Preen, which is in kind of the southern part of modern-day Turkey. And here's what it says. It says, since providence sent him, Augustus, as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. So he is better than we could have ever imagined, and no one's going to do better than him. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, the Evangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. Here's an inscription from a town in Turkey celebrating Caesar's birthday, September 26th, as the day when a new age began, when the gospel broke forth into the world. Sound familiar? See, this, this hope for a God who would come and save man is surprisingly common throughout religions. And at the time of Jesus' birth, they thought they had found the one, Caesar. Luke, however, must politely disagree. See, in, this, in our passages this evening, he takes notice of Caesar hardly more than a time marker. Caesar is hardly mentioned more than just a proof that what Luke is about to tell us actually happened. Sure, the whole world must obey Caesar's decree, but there's something much bigger going on. And to show us that, he doesn't zoom out, but instead he zooms in. He zooms in to a small family living in Nazareth, traveling the 80 miles south to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, to take part in this, sentence, in this census. And you'll see there in our passage in Verse 6, it says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Well, another way we could translate that, that, that phrase is that the days of her with child were fulfilled. Or, or more simply, the days were fulfilled. And I think Luke is telling us that it wasn't just the gestation period that was fulfilled. It wasn't just her maternity about to begin with a baby in her arms, but it was all of biblical prophecy, all of the promises of God, even history itself was converging on this one point, this town in Bethlehem. It was the point which everything before was leading to and everything which was to follow would stem from. This moment was finally here. As Raymond Brown, a noted New Testament scholar, said, the birthday worthy of honor and marking the true beginning of time took place not in Rome, but in Bethlehem. And notice the irony here. Caesar and Quirinius think they have all the power. They command the entire world to take part in a census, and the world obeys. And yet Luke paints it as nothing more than a means to an end. 
a worldly means to a divine end. J.C. Ryle says this, little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think they were only instruments in the hands of the God of Israel and were only carrying out the purposes of the King of Kings. The most powerful man in the world was nothing more than a pawn in the hands of a God working all things together to his son. It's almost as if Luke is telling us that the main reason Augustus was born, that he found himself at the pinnacle of the Roman emperor, was for one reason, to make an obscure declaration that the word of God might be fulfilled that Mary and Joseph just would happen to find themselves in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Caesar's divine purpose was fulfilled in ushering in the promised Messiah, the one who would bring the true gospel of peace. And yet he was a Messiah from the most unlikely of places. He wasn't a, a son of Caesar, not even an adopted son. He wasn't found in Rome. He wasn't a student in one of the great schools of philosophy around at that time. But instead, he was born to nobodies in the town of Bethlehem, the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere. And he wasn't even able to sleep in proper lodging, but instead had to lie where the animals grazed. When we see this picture, we start to realize what Paul meant when he said that this gospel This good news is stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks. Because who in their right mind would actually find a savior in a scene like this? Compare the two images. Caesar, he looks like he's got it all together. He's got the power. He's got the wealth. He's got the Mercedes-Benz AMG. He's got everything you could imagine pardon my offense, but he's got the 400-acre hunting farm with all the feeders and cameras you could imagine. Surely this must be the guy we look to. But who's this other guy? He's, He's born in a manger without any visible appearance of wealth. And Luke tells us, this is your Savior, a baby born to a carpenter and his wife. He would never own a house. He would never own much more than the clothes on his back. He is, quite possibly, the weakest savior we could imagine. He wouldn't ride a chariot into victory, but rather a donkey to the grave. He wouldn't wear the laurel wreath of rule, but instead would wear a twisted crown of thorns hanging upon the cross. But this boy, this no one from the backwoods of the boondocks is nothing less than God in flesh appearing, Emmanuel. When Emmanuel comes, history as we knew it came to an end and a whole new world began. A new age ushered in by the coming of God into our realm. He got to come into the world to save men from sin and death. But it's not what you would expect, nor is it what you would necessarily want. 
We want Caesar, right? We want the hero. We want the strong man. But here's the thing. Whether it's Caesar or money or the next president, whoever your savior might be, it's not really good news. It's only good news for those who can keep up. The coming of Caesar is only good for Caesar and anyone who might look like him. It's not good news for shepherds, for carpenters, for tax collectors, for prostitutes. It is not good news for sinners. But a God who became man, even more a child in a manger, now that's a gospel for all men. That's good news given to everyone. And you're going to have one of two things happen to you when you come upon this boy, when you come upon this scene. You're either going to double down on all these saviors that you've built up. You're going to double down on your pride, on your foolishness. You're going to double down on all the things you've done to prove yourself. And you're going to despise what you see before you. You're going to see Jesus lying in a manger, find it absurd, see nothing but some fodder for the beasts, good for the animals perhaps. As it's famously said, the opiate of the masses. Either you're going to see that or when you come in faith, all the power you think you have dissipates. All the success and skill and glory and honor that you think you deserve suddenly melts away in the presence of a baby boy. And you start to see yourself a little differently. You see yourself not quite as a man anymore, but a beast distorted by sin, unrecognizably corrupt, undeserving of everything you've ever received. And it's only then, when you see yourself in weakness, that you can begin to see this child before you is himself the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the one who is life himself coming to give you, Christian, life itself. So as Christmas, as we go home and enjoy our fellowship together, Remember the God who came, not to give you power, not to give you a 12-foot Christmas tree surrounded by presents for everyone you might, might love and adore, but he came to give you life, and life abundantly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of Christ to come and bring us salvation. Bring a salvation that the whole world anticipated. A salvation that has changed things for all time. Father, would you encourage us by your word, by your spirit, until all things are fulfilled and we see Jesus, our Savior, face to face. We ask this in his name. Amen.